Hello and welcome to Southside Church Podcast. For information about our church located in Cape Town, South Africa, go and check out our website, southsidechurch.co.za. We trust that the message would inspire you today. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where you've started baking something, a cake or something. And you kind of do all the baking, you even put it in the oven, get it just at the right temperature, it comes out gold, you're like, oh, and then you realize you left out the main ingredient. Now, some of you are going, yeah, and I heard someone in the first service laughing and going, ha, 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 and they were sitting a few rows this way, and guess who it was that was laughing and saying that? It was my own mother, (laughs) because I grew up finding that sometimes the baking had missed an ingredient and someone had forgot. The memory is very important. If you don't remember to put in the key ingredient, no matter how hard you've worked to put everything else together, how well it looks from the outside, you will have failed in baking a good cake. You've got to remember to some degree. Remembrance is important. But remembrance goes far beyond the idea of being a good chef. Remembrance is important to God and beneficial to us in our spiritual walk. Remembrance. Now in Luke's gospel, chapter 22, Jesus is eating bread and drinking wine with his disciples just before he's about to go and experience the crucifixion on the cross. And it records in verse 19 that he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples saying to them, this is my body given to you Do this in remembrance of me. There's something I want you to keep remembering, my children. He then takes the wine and says, this is my blood spilt for you, washing away your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And 2,000 years later, you and I still come together as the community, and we take the bread and the wine to remember. Jesus Jesus wants us to remember this very specific truth. His body broken, his life given, his his body crucified for our salvation. Now you might go, well, why does he want us to remember that? Well, let's think about that because forgetting who I am because of what he's done will lead me to start defining myself by what I do. I will then live from the outside in rather than the inside out. And that means that I will begin approaching Jesus religiously with behavior modification instead of approaching him relationally and surrendering to his inner work of transformation. Matthew's gospel, chapter 7, verse 22, it's described when Jesus says, many will say to me on that day of judgment, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name? And we even perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, Jesus says, I never knew you away from me. Jesus says, although your religious behavior is impressive, I never knew you. And if you go and study Greek, you understand words in the Greek are very different because a word that is, is pronounced, um, a, a word that is used in English and generalizes everything is very different. In the Greek, words can be described and have a very different meaning. The word used here when Jesus says, I never knew you, is the word genosko in the Greek, which directly means he never knew out of intimate relationship connectedness. It's the, it's the opposite to knowing someone out of religious intellectual head knowledge. 
What he was saying there is he was, he was saying to them, although your religious behavior is impressive, I never knew you in relationship. What was happening here was that the people thought their good religious behavior was the most important thing to God when in fact he desired relationship. They needed to remember that they could do nothing to save themselves, but surrender in acceptance of what Christ had already done for them on the cross. That's why Jesus wants us to continually remember what he did for us. It is good for our spiritual lives that his body was broken for our healing and his blood was shed for our salvation and restoration in relationship with our creator. That is why we need to remember. Remembrance is an important part of our walk with God. And Jesus speaks of remembrance not just in the context of the crucifixion, but in John's gospel chapter 14, he says to his disciples, The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Not only are we to remember what God has done, but the Holy Spirit reminds us of what God has said. The Holy Spirit reminds us of what God has said. The question is, How much of what God has said have you listened to that the Holy Spirit can remind you of? Now, if you have children, you will identify with moments in which you give them specific instructions about something you want them to remember. Like, don't forget to take your raincoat to the rugby match. Or, Don't forget to bring your maths book home for the test tomorrow. Because you care about your child's personal well-being, there are certain things you want them to remember more than others. And as your spiritual shepherd today, there are certain things I want you to remember about biblical truth that are actually more important than others. There are some things I want to know you've heard spoken from God's word, reinforced and remembered, so that in moments in your life when you're navigating things, you're able to allow the Holy Spirit to bring back to mind and empower you on the pathway of God's word. And so what I want to do for the next few weeks is take us into a series of remembrance. A series in which, like a parent, I want to say, hey, don't forget and don't worry. I'm not going to ask you about your maths book for the test or your raincoat for the rugby. Instead, I'm going to remind you of things. I'm going to talk about ensuring that we do not forget. I'm going to say, let's not forget that all things work for the good. Let's not forget that that he will never leave you or forsake you. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start digging into some of the hundreds of messages, sermons we've preached over the last four years of this church being Southside. And we're going to take the most vital and key biblical truths that need to be anchored in our daily lives. Things we need to be able to bring back to remembrance by the work of the Holy Spirit because these things are so important to our spiritual well-being. And so today as we start our series, I want to begin by going to a series we preached 
in the past called navigating the not nice. Because you can follow Jesus and be like, oh, praise the Lord, brother. My life's blessed because I follow Jesus. And then you realize, "Uh uh-uh, you're still in the human experience. And there are lots of things that are not nice. And so we started talking about a series saying navigating the not nice, guys, because being human is quite difficult. And I want to look specifically at a topic I preached in that series called love and marriage. Love and marriage. Love and marriage. And all the sinners are singing with me. So marriage was instituted by God at creation, before the fall of man into sin. It was only after sin that what God designed to be sealed by a covenant required the reassurance of a man-made contract because trust was lost. And so marriage was originally created by God in perfection and it remains part of his design today The only difference being that the fall of man into sin means marriage now exists in an imperfect setting between two sinners. And that has a consequence which theologian Tim Keller describes when he says, no one is compatible in marriage because we all have sin in our hearts and sin is self-centered. Newly married couple. Sorry to burst your bubble. See, messy and complex moments in marriage are a consequence of sin. Yet we so often live with the expectation that marriage should be closer to the perfection in which it was originally created than the fallen world in which it exists today. And we haven't only preached and shaped it like this when communicating it to young couples in the church, but our culture reinforces this idea with fairy tales of love that ends with the prince and the princess living happily ever after. Woohoo! I've been to weddings where as you walk in, they've got a beautiful little sign saying, Our happily ever after story. And I just... We've got a culture in which our love songs refer to soulmates that complete each other. And Christians often carry an expectation that their marriage experience will include the ultimate completion of their lives as spiritually they become one flesh with the person God handpicked for them out of the whole universe. They expect that because marriage is described as a reflection of Christ's relationship to his church, that they will have a God-fearing spouse who bears all the fruits of the Spirit all the time, not only being kind and gentle, but going forth and multiplying with healthy children who are raised in the ways of the Lord, honoring their mother and father while continually experiencing God's blessing all the days of their life. And then, when our expectations of the perfect marriage aren't met, we feel ashamed We think our marriage is broken and we blame the devil or our spouse, often hiding our struggles from one another behind closed doors. 
a little like Adam and Eve hid themselves with fig leaves in shame after sin was introduced into the perfection of God's marriage design. Sometimes we wrestle with failure because we've got a distorted definition of success. And marriage is one area of life we often define as Christians with unrealistic expectations. Marriage isn't about a beautiful wedding, fancy homes, cute kids, nice cars, and white picket fences. Marriage is hospital stays, working long hours, fighting through struggles, setting up life insurance, paying bills, keeping the faith, and staying together through it all. Now can I get an amen? This is the very reason why best-selling Christian author and pastor Rick Warren says that a successful marriage is a great union between two great forgivers. That is why. And thank God that today in the light of the New Testament, which records how God forgave our sins, giving us His Son Jesus who was crucified, defeating the death we deserved, that this forgiveness for one another is actually possible. That regardless of the imperfection of marriage introduced by sin, we have the ability to forgive one another just as we are forgiven by God. And so the author of the New Testament book of Ephesians 4.32 tells us that we are to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave us. Doesn't mean it's easy. Forgiveness isn't a momentary experience and it's not a feeling, it's a decision. That's a message for another time. But let's start by going back to Adam and Eve. In the beginning, God created man and woman to be companions. But as I said, Adam and Eve used their freedom of choice to rebel against God and sin entered into the picture. It tells us that after the first moment of sin, Adam and Eve covered their naked bodies because of their shame, the shame of their nakedness. In other words, vulnerability went out the window. And then when God questioned Adam and Eve about what they had done, Adam pointed the finger at Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent, and that same sinful tendency to blame others outside of owning things ourselves has now been passed down the generations to each of us, because Psalm 51 in the Old Testament tells us that we are born into this imperfect sinful state. See, I was born into sin, and sin is about centering the world around myself instead of God. And so blaming others is part of that sinful act of self-preservation that exists in all of us as sinners that are saved by grace, that are born into the state of sin. Now, it's interesting because when we think about arguing and freaking out and the blame game, and if you didn't do that and this would have never happened, we read a portion of Scripture in the New Testament from James 4 verse 1, and it asks this question, 
Why do you fight and argue among yourselves? It asks the question. And having counseled people as a pastor for 20 years, I can tell you what some of the responses to this question are. Well, pastor, you know it would all be fine, but he doesn't hold my hand like he used to. Why do you fight and argue among yourselves? Well, pastor, you know what? She's just, I'm just so sick of hearing her barking out orders. Why are you arguing and fighting among yourselves? Because she keeps doing that thing, and I told her if she stopped, everything would be fine. Well, let's see what the rest of the verse tells us about the reason behind us fighting and arguing amongst ourselves. It says, isn't it because of your sinful longings? They fight inside you. Why do you fight and argue? The person you love or married to. Well, you know why? Because they've got issues. And I've had a bad external experience of the way they treat me. No, there's something fighting in you too. Based on this biblical truth, the words of Pastor Stephen Chandler are appropriate when he says what we call marriage issues are often single issues in a marriage. Because why do you fight and argue amongst yourselves? Isn't it because your sinful longings are fighting inside you. Let us not forget the worst thing we can do is to believe that controlling our spouse is the solution to our marriage problems. We can't make our spouse more loving, patient, kind, gentle, or self-controlled. These behaviors as described in the New Testament book of Galatians 5.22, are fruits of the Spirit, not accomplishments of control. It says the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In the Bible, fruit describes the manifestation of certain behaviors. And Jesus says, if you're a follower of his, that your life will bear much fruit. Like love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, the fruit of the Spirit you want from your spouse is grown through you. And not given to. If you stop trying to control the fruits you want from your spouse and focus on yourself, you'll begin growing the fruit through your life. And let's not forget the fruit of the Spirit is self control, not others' control. So if you're blaming and trying to change the fruit produced by your spouse, you yourself aren't growing the fruit they also need. 
If you want good fruit in your marriage, the goal is not the fruit your spouse can give you. It's the vine which produces the fruit through you. Everyone is so quiet. See, Jesus says, as documented in John's gospel, chapter 15, verse 4, remain in me and I will remain in you for a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Our wholeness and desire for good fruit in our marriage is about God and me, not God and him and, or God and her. So when your marriage is struggling, don't point the finger at your spouse. Pray. And pray a prayer like this. God, help me to see what role I have played in this relational breakdown. Because, because your word says when there's an argument, there's something fighting within myself. So, so God, help me. Show me. And then show me how I can work on myself seeking restoration over being right. That's another sermon for another time. When your marriage is struggling, don't point the finger at your spouse. Pray for yourself. Help me, God. Show me what I need to embrace, what I need to work on here. And we know that in God's word from the book of Galatians chapter six, verse five, that it reminds us that we are each responsible for our own conduct. I'm not responsible to control the conduct of my spouse. I'm responsible for my own. I can't take fruit from my spouse. I need to grow it through my own life. So we need to understand that in our relationship, in our love relationship, in our marriages, our first approach has to be focusing on ourselves. And we pray a prayer inviting God to search our own hearts. But we also know that because marriage is God's idea, the devil's going to do everything he can to take opportunities when he sees us in a messy moment or a complex situation. And so we don't just pray for ourselves, but we can pray against anything the enemy would want to do to infiltrate or break down further than is necessary in the process. See, if the devil can convince you that your spouse is the problem to be blamed, then he is no longer the enemy your spouse is. They are the problem. They need a change. If they didn't, then this wouldn't. So in some way, what we can do when we look at our spouse and say, it's, it's what you are, it's the problem. What we then are doing is we're beginning to almost demonize them. Dehumanize them. And let us not forget that the slaughter of Jews under the rule of Hitler started by objectifying humans calling them pigs instead of people. Your spouse 
is created in the image of God as a person, not a threatening thing. Your spouse is a person forgiven of their sins by God through Jesus. And this is why the author of the New Testament book of Ephesians 4, 32, told us as we read earlier, that we are to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave us. I'm not going to ask you to remember the maths book for the test. I'm not going to ask you to remember the raincoat for the rugby. There is something important we must remember today. Just like a parent would say to a child they love, don't forget to take this with you. Don't forget to bring this back. I would say to us, don't forget, in your marriage, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, not others' control. So don't point the finger at others in the struggle. Pray, inviting God to work in you. Pastor and author Peter Scazzaro writes about the words of a rabbi on his deathbed who said this, When I was young, I set out to change the world. When I grew a little older, I perceived that this too, well, this was too ambitious. So I set out to change my state. This too, I realized as I grew older, was too ambitious. So I set out to change my town. When I realized I could not even do this, I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I know that I should have started by changing myself. If I had started with myself, maybe then I would have succeeded in changing my family, the town, or even the state. And who knows? Maybe even the world.